Welcome to Shadow Light. I'm Zoe. And I'm Larissa. Thanks so much for joining us as we navigate the big issues on your feed, moving from apathy and overwhelm to collective action and hopeful pathways forward. How are you doing, babes? How's your week been? I'm good. I mean, it's like exam, essay, presentation season here. So I'm just vibing with that. And I feel like my writing and speaking in Spanish is slowly improving. So yeah, there's that. How are you? That's such an amazing win. Okay, well, in like sad news, reverse news, this week I lost my 90-day Duolingo Portuguese streak. No! I know! I was like really curating that streak. I was so dedicated to it. And then like the sun has come out in London and I've been like, ah, I've got like things to do now. I've got like social things to do. I have to spend time on this app. So I'm back on my day four grind. But, you know, trying, trying, not letting it get me down. You've basically got Portugal vibes there. Yeah, exactly. That's so true. I'm living it. I'm living it. I'm living the Portuguese dream. Exactly. I'm actually really excited for this week's topic because all the other topics we've done so far have really been like new stuff for us. And I think we've both felt quite nervous when tackling these big subjects without an expert in the room. But today we have an expert in the room. This is Larissa's shit. Oh no, don't be saying that. (laughs) But this is your shit. Like you've been doing this, like you know it. Like, so if I do a massive fuck up and say something that's really wrong, I'm hoping that you'll at least be like, "Mm." (laughs) (laughs) first of all, that's not going to happen. But no, like this, yeah, this really is close to my heart. Like, and I think how we make sure that education is the kind of liberatory and like safe and like just community space that it should be like especially for kids man like this is yeah for me this is this is like the foundation for everything like for all of our movements like if we get this bit right I feel like so much of the reimagination work that we have to do is like 10 times easier but yeah that's just I'm I'm excited about this episode (laughs) before we get into it do you want to talk a little bit about like your like history in the space and like what your work has been and like what you've what you've done yes I came into this space largely through my time organizing within the National Union of Students back in the Black Students campaign in particular which like over decades has been like involved in this space but particularly for me it was you know in my union and my students union um, when I was an officer but also when I was an organizer prior to that looking at, okay, what does it mean to really tangibly think about anti-racism and decolonisation in education, particularly in a time where a lot of the public discourse around it um, was very sensationalised and drawing out very small elements that almost diluted what the real conversation we were trying to have was. And so I think this piece of the puzzle around policing around what it means to be an abolitionist in the context of schools, but also colleges and universities and other spaces of education. I feel like this is the piece for me that really plugs the gap between, oh, people thinking, oh, I'm just going to put, you know, a book on a on a reading list and that's tick the box to what we're really talking about, which is ensuring that we de-metaphorise decolonisation in education. And so, yeah, like... We just, we were running projects, we were setting up things so that people could have their own say over what they wanted their school, their college, their university to look like. And it was just really powerful, like that reimagination work. Yeah, that is definitely um, where I feel most at home in the movement. So yeah, no, I'm really excited about this. <laughs> Me too. And it's like one of the ones we did re- previously, it was like, we really didn't know how to end on a positive note, but I feel like we're going to end on a good vibe this time, just because of all of the work that you can draw from. Many a good vibe. <laughs> yeah. Many a good vibe. We need them. 
so do you want to like I guess kick us off with like I think I think one of the main things is that like a lot of people don't even realize the police are in schools and so this is a new question to like some people do you know what I mean Absolutely. So yeah, I think if I just set the scene a little bit and because I guess because of my background in this, I just want to apologize real quick because my lens in this is very UK focused. But um, yeah, I hope that people understand why, why that is. And yeah, so I just want to set a bit of the scene for the fact that policing in schools isn't recognised for what it is. So what are the stats? What is the reality on the ground? And then talk a little bit about some of the examples of what happens to children and young people, specifically working class children, young people and racialized children and young people. So let me get into it without further ado. So really, when we're talking about the criminalization of young black and brown pupils, students, yes, we're talking about the police themselves. We're talking about things like strip searches. We're talking about things like stopping of young people. We're talking about, uh, you know, the at the gates of a school, are there metal detectors, X, Y, Z, you know, the things that you may imagine if you begin to think about policing in schools. But we're also talking about the weaponization of schools as an arm of the hostile environment. And I'll get into that a little bit in a while. On top of that, we're talking about securitization and the ways that that entire framework is used to cause harm and to violate the rights of children and young people. So. To start with the physical policing in schools, what do we actually know about policing in schools? Earlier this year, the Running Me Trust published research. It was called Overpoliced, Underprotected. And that research looked into 45 police forces. It did FOIs on them. And it was actually quite shocking what came back because compared to what previous figures have suggested, it basically indicated that like the presence of police in schools is 43% greater than what we already knew. <laughs> so first of all, <laughs> we've been lied to. But second of all, we've got 979 police officers operating in UK schools. So already that's a shocking number. Then there's these so-called safer schools officers. Obviously, that is not the reality, but that's what they're called. So SSOs, if I'm referring to SSOs, that's what I'm referring to. Sometimes there are other like police force based equivalents, but essentially those are what those officers are. Half of those are based in London. And then there are already plans to increase like the number of those officers by 7%. So across across the UK. So it's not like, oh, they've trialed it. It's not happening no more. Like the plan is to keep increasing the number of these officers and the the spread that they have across um, the lives of children and young people. But then let's get into demographics, because ultimately, like, who are these police officers policing? And we know that police officers are more likely to be based in schools in areas with higher numbers of pupils who are eligible for free school meals. So what does that essentially mean? It's working class children. And then that number also correlates with higher numbers of black and ethnic minority students. So again, this is the racialization and classism towards children in our communities. And then what does that lead to? Because, of course, it's not just about the presence, it's about the outcome of that presence. And I think one of the most harrowing statistics is that, like, when we're looking at all of strip searches conducted by the Met, particularly so between 2018 and 2020, 58% of those were conducted on black boys. And if you think about the, (laughs) the disproportion there, like, it's just absolutely wild. But then I think it's important to note a lot of this, the discussion around like police in schools can be quite London heavy. So if we want to look to Manchester, we've got like Manchester based kids of colour there doing some amazing work up there. And well, 
from me maybe it's down there I don't know where I am in the world but yeah across Greater Manchester those police officers in schools there are, again are plans to increase the number so I think it's really important that kids of colour then ask the question like what does the community actually think about this and so they they conducted research with like young people teachers parents community members and like 95% of people were saying that they've not been consulted on the plans for more police in Greater Manchester schools. And then I think it was upwards of, of 9% said they felt negative about that. So who who is who is authorising this? And this, I guess, comes to the question at the core of the abolitionist perspective, which is often like, who is authorising, who is consenting to, who is allowing and saying like, yeah, this is okay, this is what I want in my community, when people are obviously uncomfortable with the idea that the police are interacting with kids and young people in this way. So speaking a bit about like the, I don't know, one of the outcomes um, being strip searching, I do want to get into that a bit more because Again, I think people don't necessarily think about the reality of this. And in so many, like countless number of these cases, like there is no trusted adult presence. So this is the violation of children by people they do not know, do not trust. And this is not just a small thing. Like I think when the child Q case came up, it was really positive that there was a conversation about it. But also that I think people are treating it like a kind of bad apple situation or like a a one-off situation. But over 9,000 children have been strip searched by the Met Police in the last five years. Like 9,000 children. Do you want to just quickly explain to people who like maybe aren't based in the UK what the Child Q case was? Because it was really a really harrowing case here in the UK. But I'm not sure if internationally people would have heard of it. Very, very true. Apologies, I was getting ahead of myself there. I'm just like, so I've, I don't know if you can hear my voice. I'm like, this this hits me heavy. So I'm just, even my brain is not even. But yeah, so the Child Q case was essentially a case that came to light of a young black girl who, whilst menstruating, had been strip searched by police without consent, without a trusted adult present. And it was because she had been falsely accused of carrying uh, marijuana. Under what grounds... We don't know, because there were some reports that said that they thought they could smell something, yada, yada, yada. Like, they were just, honestly, at that point, they were chatting absolute nonsense. But essentially, what happened was a space, her school, which should have been about her learning, her growth, her safety, the space failed her entirely, because it essentially enabled and facilitated not only the kind of violation of her rights in terms of her you know, physical space, but also this became an act of sexual violence in the way that her, you know, her personal items, uh, her personal clothing was removed at a time when she was very vulnerable in, in particular. And so I think it was emblematic of the fact that, like, this wasn't the, you know, this wasn't the criminal, ju- I'm doing air quotes, this wasn't the criminal justice system failing, it wasn't the it wasn't the system failing, it was operating exactly as designed, which was to criminalise blackness, to traumatise black children and to evade accountability for harm caused because it was only years after the case that we were finding out about what is what was done to the case of Child Q, but also what has been routinely done time and time again to young racialized children in the UK. And 
like I think it's so important as I'm just rambling about this now like to not see the case in isolation like we have to see it as indicative of an issue that is like literally rotten at its core like rotten at its core and yeah it's just the fa- I think it was the fact that we heard about it through a review years later and there were so many other cases that have not come to light that, but we know exist I think it begs the question, like, where do we go from here? Because there's so much that we don't know about what's actually happening to children and young people in our schools, in these spaces that are supposed to be safe for them. And, you know, we've got all of these things around safeguarding and protection and da 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 But at the end of the day, working class children, black and brown children, minoritized children, like, literally all of the children who are already perceived as a threat to the state from young are being treated in a way that is completely unacceptable, but somehow is being attempted to be justified by the state because of the way that it operates. So that's that on child Q. And I, I think, I hope that kind of explains the case a little bit to people who maybe didn't know um, about it. Yeah, and I think I think the thing is, is you put it in the like broader context of like, comparing like the number of assaults that actually happen compared with the number of us just like more broadly not with children like compared with the number of assaults like sexual assaults that people report on it's so like so much it's like such a minute percentage of the cases that actually get reported on when you're a grown adult who's been assaulted and you kind of like, at least you know you know you're like you're a grown person and you understand like criminal justice system blah 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 like you're a kid you're a teenager you're a kid and you're having to, like, make a claim against those, in, like, that power structure, like, I know, you know, teenage girls are, like, it's it's just, yeah, thinking about, like, the amount that we know about is such a minute slice of what the reality actually must be, thinking about, like, if you're likely to report on, like, a, a, a situation like that, it's just, like, it's rough, it's dark. And, and it also gets me because it's, like, it is the removal of childhood from these kids, like, it is... People often talk about the adultification of young black girls in particular, of young kids of colour. And I just, I do think about the fact that, like, these kids should just be enjoying school. Like, they should just be going through their day to day. Like, they shouldn't have to be worrying about these things. And yet we have a system that criminalises them from the off. And I think, like, people often talk about this in relation as well to the school to exclusion pipeline, the school to prison pipeline, um, rather, sorry, and it just reminds me of this quote from Temi Mwale. I do want to talk about Forefront Project. Um, she's the founder of Forefront Project. I want to talk about that a bit later. But I remember I went to a Black Girl Fest a couple of years ago, which, side note, is like the best thing to happen to the UK and Black women in the UK. And I remember hearing this quote from her and I just could not, it would not leave my head because I was like, what do you mean? And she essentially shared that like, let me even fight. Let me even fight. I don't want to get this wrong because it was so serious. She said that young black men on free school meals with special educational needs are 168% more likely to be excluded from school than white girl counterparts. And 168% more. I was like, my brain can't even, like, the math is not mathing in my head. And it's the way that it understands the intersection between race, class, ableism, like, do you know what I mean? Like, all of these things join together so that, like, certain kids are just criminalised from day dot. Because once you exclude kids, do you know how hard it is for them to navigate that system? Like, you've essentially removed all of the structures and safeguards of schooling. And (laughs) it's like, fend for yourself. Like, 
at, at the age of 10, at the age of 12, at the age of 14, whatever it is, like, we're essentially deciding, like, this kid is not worthy of support. Like, this kid... And then we see the huge number of those children, like, um, the huge number of excluded children who then go on to be incarcerated. And so you're essentially at that point saying, like, these are the kids who should grow up to be locked away, to be invisibilized, to not be part of our society. Like, that hit me heavy. That hit me real heavy. That is, I, I, like, I have the same as you. I was like, what, like uh, that intersection. And I, I think it's a, re- like, it's a really important point to bring up ableism and, and neurodiversity as well, because so often you have kids who are neurodiverse who this system of education is incredibly formulaic and works for a very particular type of learning. If that type of learning works for you, great. You've scammed the system just by being born the way that you're born. If you have any kind of neurodiversity, you are labelled as a troublemaker, as disruptive, just because, like, you could be just as smart, just as keen to learn, but this structure doesn't work for you. And so you're already written off as a problem. And you put that intersection with, yeah, race and class and gender, and it's like you're... before the kid is even in school, they're starting from a point where they're going to be perceived as like an issue, right? And like, I guess where that's that that's where that's that comes from. It's like we need to transform education. <laughs> it's predetermination. It's like from your postcode, from who you're born as, they've already set the flipping scales, and that's why this this just gets me because kids deserve the world. Like, and I think for me, it's like understanding children as like an oppressed class and like within that like who is facing the bare brunt of that oppression like so important but yeah I sorry I feel like I've been I feel like I've talked for ages and there's so much more that I want to say but also I know you've got loads to share as well no keep going keep going keep going I think one of the other things that I want to talk about is Black Caribbean identity and like no more exclusions who are this grassroots coalition based in the UK. They've got like teachers, trade unionists, young people, students, like academic, I don't know, parents, like literally anyone you could want in this space, like coming together to talk about stuff, they bring them together. It's amazing. Check out their work. Definitely recommend. And No More Exclusions did a exclusions during the pandemic report. And I think, again, really worth a read. And it was talking about the disproportionate exclusion of Black Caribbean and mixed white and Black Caribbean pupils. And for me, for people who don't know, I'm from a Caribbean background. And I think there is a very interesting characterization of Caribbean communities of not caring about education. And the way that that assumption then pivots into essentially the criminalisation of Black Caribbean children is a very acute and specific thing in the UK. And the reason it's very scary is because it's also, for me, a link to the leg- the colonial legacy of education systems in the Caribbean that still exists. Because if I talk to my cousins back at yard, they're essentially still going through the education systems that were set up in the time in which the Queen remained, or the monarchy remained the head of state, Uh, in those countries. There's something very insidious to me about the UK education system as an export of colonialism and then a colonial legacy of the diaspora in the UK being criminalised. Like, something about that, the connect between that, science, science fishy. I find it quite hard to um, articulate, like, but it just feels like over and over again, there is a repetition of 
who is seen as worthy and who is seen as unworthy, who is deserving of um, a positive educational experience and who isn't. And like, the, it, I think also the, the focus on the UK education system um, through this lens isn't just a focus on the UK because the UK has exported its education as a tool of colonialism since day dot. So I think just to also draw in, like I'm kind of like thinking about this as I'm talking, but I think it's important to note that like, even though this is all what I shared is quite UK focused, like the impact of it is not. So yeah, I just wanted to share that. No, and I think I think you may, you raise a really good point there about like, and I think it kind of ties back to what you were saying at the beginning about like education has this like this liberatory potential of like like nothing else. Like education is so so powerful, but people know that, and then you know the inverse of it is is it's a tool. It can be a, a brutal tool of oppression and erasure, and the UK education specifically, the UK education system specifically has like untold horrors to answer for in terms of like global colonization and you think about it still to this day like you know look at the university rankings worldwide it's still like the UK is up there you've got your Oxford your Cambridge like we are still like this beating heart of like what is supposedly like the beacon of like you know higher education and it's like I don't know we set the rules that we win in kind of thing and it's 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 still it's still happening but yeah anyway so just to kind of, I mean, a lot of what I'm talking about it kind of is very like, similar to what you were saying, but Larissa gave me some homework to kind of think about the specifically like this, this like the increased use of, of, of surveillance technologies in schools that we're seeing, which has really kind of like heated up in the last 20 years, just broadly due to kind of like the mass proliferation of just tech in general, like the mass is much cheaper to make, blah, blah, blah. And I was interested in this because like specifically this really started happening when we were in school, like when I was in school, I can remember the, the big debates around CCTV being brought into schools at like a, a much larger scale. And also, like, we've been talking a lot, Larissa and I, and also I've been writing as well a bit, a bit more about, like, big tech and getting my head around it. And I was like, just when I was doing some initial reading, I was like, it's giving tech capitalism, but I just need to figure out how. And I need to find the, find the academics that are telling me why this is giving tech capitalism. And I found the girlies. The girlies sorted me out, so I'll get to that. But I just, like, I sort of was... Yeah, started with this kind of idea of like, okay, what are these trends in that's hyper surveillance and securitization of schools? And I was particularly looking at the UK and the US just because there's a lot of similarities. And so what do I mean by this? Basically, it's the increased application of surveillance technology. So thinking like CCTV, biometrics, when we talk about biometrics, it's things like, you know, I don't know if you ever heard, like the kids that had to use their fingerprint to pay for school lunches. I remember when that came in and I like was like, why are they doing that in school? But like, I genuinely thought it was because they didn't want because in high school we had cards. I genuinely thought it was because we would all just lend each other our cards and pay for each other's lunches. And they were like, you're not allowed to pay for each other's lunches. So I was like, they're bringing in the fingerprints so we don't buy each other lunches. No, that's not what they're doing. They're, they're profiling us as criminals. It's crazy. So things like that, software insecurity, and basically, and it's pitched as a way to protect students. Like that's, the, that's how it's pitched. And it's in response to kind of two-ish broad trends. In the UK, it's really been a response to kind of the global like war on terror and this idea of, of homegrown terrorism that the UK was really pushing. This idea that like young people are being like radicalised into terrorism in the UK and then therefore are a threat to our society. Um, and in the US, it's very, very similar, but that you kind of layer on top of that school shootings and gun violence. So there's this idea that we need to protect kids and we need to protect wider society from this kind of radicalization that's happening in our own country. And in the UK, the, the response was this thing called Prevent. And so Prevent was brought in at around 2011. And it was the preventative strand of the UK's counterterrorism strategy, which basically placed a 
this like legislative duty on staff in schools to identify and report radicalized or extremist behavior among students. So basically, firstly, identify and record early signs of radicalization. I'm finger quoting here among children and young people. And secondly, to refer those individuals to other institutions and mainly a de-radicalization program called Channel. So I read this kind of this piece by these three academics called Nekla Akik, I hope I pronounced that right, Joe Deacon and Bob Hindle. Um, it was written in 2018. And it was kind of looking at this history of like the effect of the kind of moral panic around the war on terror and how that influenced surveillance in schools. And it basically prevent was a strategic way for the government to tie schools into this broader wave of counterterrorism and hypersecuritization that was happening across the UK as a way to seem like they were like handling the war on terror, but also simultaneously to increase their reach in monitoring kind of just broad society and so prevent was like we're you know we're here to deal with all types of terrorism i I swear but you know largely it was really like focusing on kind of ideas around islamic extremism and because that was like what the kind of media was focused on at the time and so to like do this like duty that was put on schools they had to adopt new security measures surveillance policies teachers had to step into this new role as kind of monitoring and reporting on students but it was positioned, these technologies and these systems and these processes were positioned as a way to protect children and also wider society from this idea of homegrown terrorism. But basically, this kind of paper that I read was basically a literature review of lots of different reports and, and academics and, and practitioners who'd kind of reviewed all different types of impacts of, of Prevent. And it didn't slap. Everybody hates it. It's so unbelievably widely criticised as a flop. It's crazy that it's still going now. But I'll just run through some of the particular reasons, because I think this case study gives a good context of like wider global trends. And you can start to see some of the more insidious powers that be that are worming their way into our schools and um, kind of through this, this case study of Prevent. So the first thing they did was that they pitched Prevent as a safeguarding policy. And we generally like safeguarding policies in schools we're fans of, right? Like we're fans of policies and strategies and processes that protect children from sexual abuse, from drugs, from violence, all of these things. And so they were like, it's just another safeguarding policy, guys. Like we're just trying to protect the kids. But unlike other safeguarding policies, which position the child right as to be protected, it's like this child needs to be protected, protected, we need to prevent harms from happening to this child. Prevent, it doesn't work like that. It immediately positions the child as the potential threat the child is the danger. So whereas other safeguarding policies are protecting the child, it's like, no, no, we need to start thinking about the child as a potential criminal. So before we even get into the security that it enables, it's already that thing that you were talking about earlier, Larissa, about this adultification of children, this making them like as a, out as a potential criminal, potential threat when they're like coming into schools. And this goes as young as preschool. I'm not joking. This is not just secondary schools. This is kids who are like five, six, seven years old. They're like, they're all potential criminals. Let's please them. And it's, it's, unbelievably like cruel so yeah we've already got this idea that like this child is positioned as a threat and a deviant and if they do anything that makes us think that they're being radicalized instead of focusing on oh let's read you know how this child is acting as needing practical or emotional help our response is heightened state surveillance and reporting them to policing bodies basically so already the care of this child who might be exhibiting abnormal behaviors who might have you know, be saying things that they don't normally say, it's, it's, a, it's a threat and a danger to not just the school, but to society. 
And the second thing was, is they kept the wording on it super vague. So there's a really lack, a lack of a clear definition around radicalization, extremism, and what these indicators of radicalization that teachers should be looking out for. So because there's no, there's no one size fits all approach, schools develop their own context specific list, which immediately creates so much space for interpretation and bias and prejudice to sneak in based on kind of like whoever is making decisions in those schools. And it, it puts pressures on schools to enforce something that is so complex and intangible that it, it doesn't ha it can't be defined. Um, and so Prevent had these like put out these things that you might want to consider as indicators. And they include things like showing a mistrust of the mainstream media, appearing angry about government policies, things that anything that could be perceived as anti-British or anti-Western. And I was like, they're just, it's just, we're just trying to make all the kids bootlickers. That's all they're trying to do. They're trying to make everyone not have an independent thought. They're trying to stop critical engagement with the world and, and therefore critical engagement with the government that's structuring these policies. It's, it's terrifying because if you think about all the people that could be like put under that category, like it's just, it's absolutely wild that we have a framework that is so disproven, that is so, everyone can poke holes in it because it's so broad and this like it's just because it's an apparatus of the state to criminalize people it's like if you question it you don't care about terrorism <laughs> like it's it's absolutely wild sorry I'm just jumping in please continue but I just those it's those indicators no keep jumping in because it's giving cults no literally it's like if you question if you question this country and if you question the people running this country then you are a threat. And that is it's, honestly, it's a mask off moment because what we knew they already thought was literally written down in black and white. And it has been for the past couple, like decade and however long. Like, so yeah, sorry. I just, I find it absolutely wild. And so, sorry, I just, to say one more little thing, like why I find that particularly so um, jarring is in the context of like this whole freedom of speech nonsense that's going on. So I'm really tangenting this, but like in the, in the context of all of that, where people are like, Oh, you people are being canceled and silenced and all of this stuff. What's actually happening is like students who know that they are being surveyed, um, which is particularly so Muslim students or those who are racialized as Muslim are then saying, like, I don't feel like I can be myself in my school, in my college, in my university, like, and shout out to Kareem and Ilyas, uh, who did the um, Muslim student survey back in, must have been 2017, 18, who really, who unearthed that and said, like, realistically, Muslim students are saying, I don't feel comfortable actually expressing my opinions because I'm going to get flagged under this system because it thinks as soon as I question the place that I live in, I'm I'm a threat to my society. Like what? Yeah, no, and I, this is what this report is also saying. Teachers are literally saying, like, we don't want to be reinforcing this. It makes an us versus them dichotomy. It makes teachers feel like they're reinforcing racist policies and therefore widening the gap of like of mistrust between teachers and students when teachers are really on the front lines of students who need care, who need support and are already under-resourced. And then you're bringing in these policies which reinforce this idea of like, we can't trust our teachers, we're being, like, we're being racialized, we're being unfairly treated, which, you know, these policies put teachers in position where they often have to do that or if they don't have if they have unchecked biases they're doing like free of their free will and it's like 
so many teachers have said that this imposition on the free speech of like young people just trying to navigate the world and critically engage with ideas for the first time, you need to be able to have conversations about complex and nuanced topics and hold that space. And that's a mu that, that kind of environment, students are going to be able to move through maybe things that they've heard or seen online or maybe things that are maybe could be dangerous to themselves or others. But having that open space to talk about it and being met with respect and being met with kind of uh, learning what like critical media theory is and how to criticize the sources that you're reading, that is an environment where kids will be able to think, you know, for themselves and for their society and for their community. But this report is actually doing the exact opposite, was doing the, this um, prevent was doing the exact opposite of what it's said to do, which is it's building in an us versus them narrative. It's building in this implication. And this is a quote from um, Davies who said, it implies that the immigrants do not adhere to British values and therefore represent a threat. Because one of the other things that prevent is puts on the like, whatever on the the flags thing is like it's dedicated to promoting fundamental british values which has like really no definition and it's just it's reinforcing divides alienating kids with other heritages reinforcing um racist stereotypes in schools because that's the way it's it's been utilized and so it's exactly as you say it's like kids feel unsafe to be themselves to encounter ideas that's what that's what education is supposed to be about that's the fundamental thing of what education is supposed to be about and I think it's really important that you mention immigration status there because the way that teachers have been essentially seen as like the next set of border control is crazy. Like I was reading this story about children who are being denied free school meals because their parents have no recourse to public funds. So for anyone who's not aware, like no recourse to public funds is essentially the phrase they use when it's like you don't have um, settled status in the UK. So you don't have like... I don't know, like, it's it's kind of the alienation of people who are there before their kind of process, for want of a better word, because I, I hate the way that that is kind of the bureaucratization of human beings, but you know what I'm saying. And so, like, on so many levels, like, in schools, children are essentially being criminalised for their immigration status, for their religion, for where they come from, for their country, for their back... Like, on just so many levels... It's wild. But anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm going to start interrupting again. No, because it's all of this, this all, it all ties in. And it, this is why it's such an, it's really nebulous. And I think the kind of other thing that I was going to mention is it's so hidden. And this is where the kind of security and the technology comes into it, because they, they tie schools into these like multi-agency partnerships with like the police and the criminal justice system. So that teachers are reporting students that they flagged as like, uh, I don't know, like, I don't know. I read one like school governor who was just really pissed off about the whole thing because he kept like kept getting reports about this kid who was going to like anti-badger coal protests and it was being flagged as like extremism and he was like this is a waste of everyone's fucking time this kid just loves badgers but it's like you've got kids being flagged for like any form of like political engagement at all and then they're being, you know, the, their names are being sent off to like, you know, these terrorism prevention like agencies and all of this like directly conflicts with the confidentiality that schools are under, like the Data Protection Act of 1998 and the Human Rights Act of um, 1998 about privacy. And like there's a, this this particular piece talks about how there's been excessive information recorded and shared about disproportionately young Muslim and people racialized as Muslim students and their families. And this is something that parents aren't really aware of and can't see. So this is, and it's kind of what you were saying before, there's this defining quality of this of this process of securitizing schools is that they're sneaking in all these surveillance technologies and processes and practices um, without the parents and the kids and sometimes even like some of the teachers realizing how insidious it is. 
And like one of the particular examples is that like, you know, there's this, there's big moral panic. And like some of this is true is that kids really easily like radicalized online. Like we've seen the alt-right pipeline. We've seen what happens with incels on the internet. Like kids, you know, can get radicalized when they have, you know, unfiltered access to the internet. So there's not like, there is like a reality in in some of this. But they, so they brought in a, a, throughout the 2010s is bringing in this software which blocks and filters web pages um, and, and, and monitors. The key thing is, is really monitoring all of the students' internet activity. And I was cracking up about this because I remember when they did this in my school and I was saying to Lewis earlier, I literally thought it was because they wanted to not play com not play computer games. And there was this kid called Hassan, shout out Hassan in my school, who was just a genius and he like would be able to hack through all the high walls and give us firewalls and give us all a little code and then we could all play our little mini clip <laughs> games. But you know, you're like, go off Hassan. But actually he was like, hacking through prevents firewall. I was like, go off. <laughs> like if Hassan can cut through it, I'm sure we all can. But like, again, they're tracking all of this data that kids are doing. Think kids, and think about the things that kids are searching for in relation to like, you know, maybe you're like gender, your sexuality and into kind of new ideas that you're kind of encountering for the first time because you're confused. You're taken to the internet to like be like, I don't know what I'm doing. And it's not subject to independent evaluation, but again, up to the school's personal judgment on what's considered extremist. And like, again, it's this idea that there are so many that disproportionately um, students who are racialized as Muslim who are being reported when there isn't even a discernible risk it's just because teachers are like scared of doing things wrong or not quite sure they don't want to miss anything so there's just students being reported all the time and um adams did a report which was actually estimates are about 90 percent of young people who are referred to this pose absolutely no risk of being radicalized whatsoever so that's like not and think about how much time and how much like money that is of teachers time teachers precious time like reporting to these systems and like this kind of broadens out a little bit because in the pandemic, students kind of academic lives moved fully online. And in the US now, more than 80% of teachers say that their schools use this software to monitor students' online behaviour and in the home um, when they log on to like the school servers. Um, and only one in four of those teachers said tracking was limited to school hours. So there's this this software called Go Guardian, which reaches more than 23 million students in the US. Like the whole departments of education and of state departments use Go Guardian. Um, and extends to personal devices, family laptops, and it's up to schools to decide whether they turn that extended monitoring on or not. So it's like there's no kind of like regulation on this. I was just thinking about like how this essentially becomes a, a big brother situation of like you, you can't go anywhere or do anything or search anything like without feeling watched and I was also thinking about what you said just before about like the the waste of teachers time in the fact that this is so statistically insignificant in actually doing what it claims to be doing but it's also the trauma that children are experiencing from these encounters and from this reporting and from being treated as criminals. And then suddenly they're like, oh, no, you're fine. Like, but the child is not going to forget that experience. Like the child doesn't forget being treated in that way, being seen as a suspect. And that, so that it just made me think of the students, not suspects campaign um, that NUS did a while back. And like, I think it was so important to like in that work on earth, how it impacts people's engagement with their education and with these spaces that are supposed to be safe for them because they then, they're then looking around thinking like who's watching me like who's suspecting me who's seeing me as a threat but anyway sorry please please continue no I was just actually about to start talking about this podcast and episode it was called tech won't save us podcast with Paris Marx and Chris Gillard called surveillance won't protect students and they were talking about this exact thing about how not only do these the sec these securitization techniques not work 
they actually are just a load of money to traumatize kids in new ways. Like that is literally it. It's not only not doing what it says it's doing, it's actually doing a ton of other terrible stuff as well. And they he, they were specifically talking about like, with this online pleasing, who gets to decide what safe online behaviors were are. If you think about right now, like especially in the US, like the, the backlash around trans children, access to healthcare, on teaching critical race theory, all of that could be, depending on who decides what's safe, considered unsafe. And he talks about how so many more children of marginalized identities being policed, repressed, targeted. And the Center of Democracy and Technology released a report which said many students have been outed through this technology to their parents unconsensually. So it's just such an infringement on the rights of a child to just be a person and to explore themselves as a person and specifically queer and trans kids are being are being targeted the use of this invasive software and targeted and chris also talks about how some of the biggest this one really was like mm, biggest companies in the us who sell these materials bragged that these these online softwares can anticipate predict and prevent organizing amongst amongst teachers so not only is it pleasing the children but it's stopping teachers from unionizing and being able to kind of like unionize and, and push back against the policies of securitization in their schools they've since deleted it because it got loads of lashback but like there's still articles up there kind of like tracking that they're like we can shut down teachers unions this is why it's so important for like teachers students members of the community to actually come together on this because you they are they are organized <laughs> like on the other side they are organized in seeing us all as a threat so we have to be equally organized in the response i mean it's so true and it reminds us of the conversation that we had around like what's going on on the like the factory grounds in these tech places in china as well it's the same it's these same technologies that are using to please people from coming together and, and being a community and rising up i just want to talk a little bit before we move on about the work of emmeline taylor who basically looks at these kind of like in the US and prevent in the UK and has kind of created the like tied in three broad trends about why this is happening. So she talks about how there's this rising culture of fear as part of kind of like government led like panics on rising crime perpetuated by the media. It's really easy to get people riled up about this. It sells papers. Parents care about their kids. They're scared. And it's really easy to capture and politicize those fears. Like that's something that, that that's going to sell. Media is going to sell. Then the kind of like media government complex manipulates these fears and they place the school as responsible for this broad range of societal ills. So they say the school is responsible for your kids, you know, interacting with drugs, violence, terrorism, bullying. The All of these things that the kids interact with are symptoms of a much broader problem in society. It's not the school's fault all of these things are happening, but they place the school as responsible for the child interacting with these like kind of broader societal ills. They then say, hey, we're rolling back the state. We've got no money. We can't do anything about it. And position these private security and technology companies as the only way forward. It's what um, Emmeline calls the flourishing industry of the surveillance school economy. Companies which used to sell tech to police and the army now have what they're calling actually the biggest new market in security technology, which is the school and education system. So it's just this, it's this insidious way to make money for the private sector of the criminalization of our children, basically. And so she finds that we get stuck in this cycle, right? And she looks at how school shootings in Columbine in, Columbine in 1999, that there was CCTV at that school shooting, but because it didn't dissuade or prevent the tragedy, she quotes, the terrifying shooting has become a key reference point in justifying increased surveillance and security systems in schools throughout the United States. And it's just this trend of how actually tragic events lead to governments 
positioning security as the way to solve these problems rather than seeking opportunities to like think about how we really respond to the societal issue or really embed restorative practices. And Chris Gillard has this great quote, which is this failure of surveillance is always met with calls for more and deeper surveillance because we just get stuck in this cycle and it's of profit. It's of profit for these um, organisations. So we just see that like, there's no attempt made to address the underlying causes of school violence. Then more divisive measures are brought in, more and more security. That's how you kind of end up in the US with teachers trained to use guns and prison-like infrastructure in schools, deepening culture of fear and division. The market grows, the demand grows, the profit for these privatised companies grows. The state steps back from any kind of accountability or responsibility. And it's so interesting because Emily looks at Prevent being enacted. And in 2015, there was a sort of arms race, like a security arms race, where Impero, Future Digital and Securus were were racing to produce anti-radicalisation software that could be sold to schools. And just six months later, after producing that software, the UK Education Secretary said that having that software was mandatory in schools. So it's like this government, private, like arms race, making money. And so I think it just really shows that it's it's a, this is, this isn't an accident. This isn't like, oh, things are getting really bad. We need to kind of please the schools. It's insidious way of making money for the private sector because it's a growing market for selling these, <laughs> these horrifically invasive technologies to police children who haven't done anything. Anyway, run over. But that, this is the thing, though, because often, like, when we talk about abolition, like, it's very clear in the, in the US, I think, how profit is made from criminalisation. I think that is it's a lot... Um, it's a lot easier jump, but there are so many ways in the UK how, like, criminalisation of children, of young people, of adult, like, literally of society and of the most marginalised in society is used to garner profit. And I think it's so important to draw light to that because, yeah, I think it's, it's often people aren't, it's not as simple to make the jump because it's like, oh, okay, but it's not the same system, but it is the same system. It's just done with a little bit more... It's like racism in the UK. You know how in the US they'll just call you a uh and then be done with it? Like, in the UK it's all, like, under the under the covers. It's the same with the money, like... But scratch the surface and you'll find it. Like, oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. Yeah, America is, like, loud and proud. Like, we're, we're using prisoners to make money. We're using people who are in prisons to make money. In the UK they're like, we would never do that. But they're doing the same shit, you just can't see it. And I think what's really interesting is is actually now how these private corporate interests are shaping school policy. Like before it was like, oh, we'll make the policy and then the, t- the tech will come in. Now it's looking at how like, OK, well, we've got all this security technology in schools, but we sold that. What if we repositioned it as actually a way to help discipline students in schools? And they're calling it um, securitization creep, where it goes from, well, we're keeping your kids safe, we're keeping you safe. And actually, like now we're actually saying loud and proud, we're using it as a way to discipline children. And so all of this CCTV is now used like instead of to keep children safe it's to like root out troublemakers and so it it's like when does it stop when does it end when do we stop treating children like criminals and how bad is it going to get when it seems like we're so unable to see it that creep happening and it's happening really slowly but also kind of quickly this all happened in the last like 20 years you know what I mean like that's not that long a period of time for these companies to have their claws in our in our schools and I think that securitization creep isn't just happening in schools either it's happening across the education system because a lot of universities are now using systems that are 
the the justification similarly to you know in schools it's justified to you know it's it's to keep children safe in universities it was like oh we can monitor students mental health better so that we can make interventions if they need it and so they started collecting all of these data points around you know what buildings people were accessing and like when what times they're on campus why like and then they were like yeah it will help us keep students safe <laughs> like and these are these are adults now because I think there's there's also an interesting, like, with the paternalistic approach that we take to children and childhood without seeing children as, like, fully-fledged adults. But now that they're justifying it for adults as well, so where does it actually end? Scary. Very scary. I know, and I, I Chris Gillard had this great quote, which was, like, surveillance systems across the board are an attempt to exert control over a population. The goal is to control them. Like that is what surveillance systems and technologies are used for. You plan on a school. If you heard a, if you heard a parent saying that about a kid's school, like school is about exerting control over a child. The goal is to control the child. You'd be like, what the fuck? No, it's about nurturing growth. It's about love. It's about developing happy, healthy, sustainable, like lifestyles and experiences. And so what we're seeing is that like, the, the, actually no, like, we, we, let's just say it. We're trying to control children we're tr- we're trying to control children that's what we're trying to do like but if if we go for the real tea here that has always been what the victorian system of education was like it was always yeah, about yeah. control like they just now have tech to do it as well like it was always about creating a conveyor belt of workers and now it's just like okay how do we create the conveyor belt of workers but also make sure that they don't have any individual thought in, in this way in this way in this way like it is just the amplification of a system that already existed. Like our education system was never built to be liberatory. Like our education system was always built to put you behind a desk, to tell you what you're doing every hour of the day, to remove you and strip you of your agency. And that is just being extrapolated through technology to now mean that like, if you act out of that system, we're going to know about it and we're going to act on it. It's not new though. That's all I'm saying. It's not new. It's true. It's true. It's always been like, how do we control the future workforce? How do we repress the future workforce and keep them in line? And so from your experiences and kind of thinking about how do we practically think about abolition in this space? Like, where do we like, where do we go from here? Like, what do you think? Where can we draw hope from? This is the thing. It's the yeah, we do need to get into some of this, (laughs) some of the hope in it, because this has been heavy. So I feel like... Before we even get into tangible, tangible stuff, I just kind of want to explain why, for me, this is so important in in connection to um, the decolonization of education. Because I was saying at at the top of the chat, like, I think so often decolonization is, like, it's extracted from what it really is. Like, it's de-metaphorized in a way, like, no, it's metaphorized rather, so that it's like, oh you know, it doesn't really mean doing anything. It doesn't really mean changing anything. It's just like nice, fluffy language, which is not what it is. And like, so I think often I would talk about like the three, for me in my head, I see it as like three different types of decolonization. Yes, it's like talking about knowledge production and knowledge sharing and like having to change those things, which are very, very important. But in the context of like policing and abolition and education, I think is thinking about like the university as a site of community and like how do we redress like how racism um, and colonial legacy manifest in like the relationships between institutions, pupils, students, workers, like both academic and non-academic and like 
all of this stuff, how does this come together? And then, like, I guess the third piece of the puzzle in my head is, like, education in relation to everything else and the impact it has on, like, economic, social, political systems, etc. And, like, I say that to say that, like, yes, it's really important that we're thinking about, like, I, I think separate conversations about, like, how do we change what is being taught and what is being recognised is really important. But I think if it doesn't exist in communion with conversation about like who is being harmed in these spaces and why and like what is that enabling or producing um, and to what end like then we're not going to be able to decolonize education that's why for me like this piece of the puzzle is so important I often like when I'm doing workshops and stuff on decolonization I always talk about like these five stages of decolonization that were like created by Poco Lenui who's like come up with the idea that like to go through all of this, like start to finish, like you have to go through these five stages in order to do this in a in a kind of real way. And it starts with like rediscovery and recovery. So like active reclamation of your roots, uh, moves on to mourning, so like grieving of the trauma and loss. The third stage is for me is the most important, the most relevant here, and I'll come back to this, but it's, it's dreaming and it's like building a new vision for what to come. And then it moves on to like commitment and ensuring that the collective is unified in the direction you're moving in and then action, so like tangibly moving forward towards that reality it's also where for me decolonization and abolition like intertwine in my mind because it's like okay we can burn down these systems and we can criticize and 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 take issue with these systems but like what are we actually building and that's where like the magic is I think because it's like okay let's bring together young people pupils students teachers professors academics but also the people who work in our schools, whereas the people serving our lunches, the people who are cleaning the space, like let's bring people together and actually figure out like, what is it that we want? What is it that we need? What is it that children deserve from this space? And yeah, I just think that's the most beautiful place where you can find hope. And like, I think there's three organizations for me that I really, really look to for like leadership on all of this. I briefly mentioned Temi Mwale earlier. Um, she's the founder of the Forefront Project. And I, I definitely cannot do justice to the work that they're doing on the ground because it's incredible and it's been incredible for years. But um, I think that the reason that they are so impressive to me is because they very powerfully combine um, the need to build peace um, with the need to build knowledge and then build power. So when building peace, they have this grassroots community peace building system. And I think the reason it's so powerful is because it demonstrates that policing is not the answer, but it also models the alternative. And like, how do we keep us safe? Because we often say that, right? As abolitionists, we say like, the police don't keep us safe, we keep us safe. But like, what does that actually look like? And they're like doing that day in, day out. So it's it's a really, really cool stuff. And I would definitely recommend to folks to check it out. And then the the, the building knowledge piece um, is like around moving from that harm to healing. So like, thinking about that through a transformative justice lens, like giving everyone a chance to like, and I think focus on community healing as well, not this like kind of individualized approach to like, oh, you you good, <laughs> but like, are we good? Like, um, and I think that's really powerful. And then like building power. So I think understanding all of this as part of systemic violence and like, how do you then empower those young people who are experiencing this violence to then be part of the solution in eradicating systemic violence. That's that's forefront. One of the other places I really find hope, as I said, NME, I think I mentioned them slightly earlier. Oh, sorry, no more exclusions. And they're just 
I think for me, they, they're really powerfully connecting all of those different actors and like specifically being quite youth led as well. And it's, like, it's very coalition based. So it's not about, um, it's no, there's no top down in the way that you often see in like, as I say, these Victorian education systems, it's about like, how do we bring together people together to actually think about, yes, exclusions as a, a crucial part of this story, kind of thinking about the um, exclusion to prison pipeline, but then it's very much rooted in a kind of an abolitionist logic, which I think is really powerful. So it sees that as like, yes, this is the core campaign for the minute, but that is like part of a broader story. And I think connecting that piece in people's minds is so powerful because it's like taking it from something tangible that people can understand and see like the impact of in their community to like something far broader. So yeah, and another place that I find hope is is in kids of colour. I mean, it's the work they're doing is so heavy, but it's so necessary. And I just, I, I want to give them their dues because I think I was particularly impacted. It was uh, uh, last year, I believe, there was a case of young boys who were, there was a case of violence. Uh, I don't want to get into what happened because I think that isn't really the point here. The point is that there are one. There was one person who was involved in the harm cause. There was another person who was there, but somehow they managed to condemn ten young black boys in this case through association. Um, it was through the fact that they were in a group chat and they had, out of grief and out of anger, said things not actually caused the harm, but said things um, that were then deemed to involve them, and it was all part of this kind of gang matrix, gang label. Of, um, you know, they're all caught up in it. But it was just really harrowing to see young kids treated in this way. And I think I think of it because when you're talking about surveillance, when you're talking about the ways in which like schools, you know, servers and like literally every area of, of kids' lives are now being crept into. Um, it just really made me think of that case. Um, that case is so interesting. So, so it was like the software that was used to look at the group chat about what the kids were sending to each other. Is that how they found it out? The thing is, I actually, I can't speak to this case well enough because I just don't know the ins and outs of it. But I just know that, like, barely any of them are actually involved. What I'm reminded of is, I mean, I mean, I think we do have to ask a question here, which is, like, it's really interesting comparing it to that, you know, the Warwick case of the, the like, really, like, rich white boys who had that group chat and, like, someone leaked some of their comments and they were like... Sorry, I'm laughing. Like, do I know... Babes, that was my whole life. No way! Okay. Yeah, of course, actually. That was, I was president of the anti-racism and the anti-sexism society at the time that that happened. Right. So. Was that your uni? It was just the maddest, the maddest three years. Yeah. Like, that was me. That was me and my friends who would resist it. We were running the, pro I skipped an exam to run one of those protests, like. Okay, well, I'd, but do you know what I mean? There's something really interesting there about, like, wasn't it that they didn't even, they got, maybe all of them got temporary suspension for saying, like, really, really graphically nasty stuff, right? Essentially, very little happened to them because they lawyered up, because they were rich and they could afford it. And um, they also had a PR support um, that they were paying for, all sorts. It was absolutely... I've never... To be honest, that, <laughs> that experience radicalised me because it was seeing it happen in real time on my campus, in my community seeing these two two girls and, and sending so much stuff to them still to this day, like, who thought these boys were their friends, found out that they'd been saying all of this in a, in a group chat and then 
when they came to report it, the person who was assigned from the side of the university to take the case forward was essentially the head of press in the university. So his concern was protect the institution. But anyway, like, there's so much I can't even get into. Again, there's NDAs involved and there's nonsense. Yeah. Props for that campaign, because, I mean, it did, I think it it was absolutely national furor, but also, like, does it just really shows, right, just there, you've got two different cases, similar things, like leaked group chats, potentially saying things that people would find harmful. I know I don't know what was said in the group chat of the case you're talking about, but the, the, the stuff that these white boys were saying was absolutely awful. Some ended up with a temporary suspension from uni, some end up in jail. Like, if that doesn't speak to, like, how these systems disproportionately impact people of like marginalized and racialized identities it's like yeah i don't know this security doesn't exist in a vacuum does it it's like literally for some people for some people text me messages is nothing off their back for other people it's jail time literally jail time and these are we're talking about kids whereas those a lot of people call it like the boys in the group chat they were men they were adults they were grown people do you know what i mean whereas these boys that kids of colour were supporting were actually children. So it's to, again, it's like who is criminalised, who isn't, that is set from so young. I Yeah, I, I still do find hope in, in the work that kids of colour is doing because they are defending kids' rights in a way that also centres like the voices of those children and sees them as part of the conversation in like eradicating um, systemic violence. So I think that's really powerful. I'm really, really glad that they are there in Manchester doing the damn thing. And there's also, if people want to know more about that group chat, because I, as I say, I really don't have the, the details, but um, on all four, there is a documentary that I think came out. I think it's already out. It's called Jailed Over a Group Chat. Link down below, maybe, if we can figure out how to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it is really amazing that, like, how like how deep this work needs to be and how deep these, these groups are really going with this work. And I think, you know, what we try and do on this podcast is think about things that we can do as well in our own lives and like maybe you aren't don't have loads of free time to go like deep into a campaign in your local area but like you know kids you know parents and from what I was reading this might not change the system but you can impact your community by engaging with schools like schools have a duty of care to kids they have a responsibility and they are terrified of parents they actually are like i was reading this article in the guardian which was around the time that about around the time that prevent came in where all of these kind of surveillance technologies were being brought in and parents didn't know what was going on because we we didn't even have half the language that we have now to speak about what these that technology the impacts of these technologies will be and the parents that had the capacity and the privilege of the time to get involved with the school, ask questions, relay that information to other parents and children and like campaign and lobby for what those that community wanted to be reflected in the school. Nine times out of ten, one. It's just that like they're that the, these systems are expecting you to not be able to see them, to not be able to engage with them, to not be able to call them out. But you can, I really think you can make a difference. And if you have like if you have the privilege of time, if you have the privilege to get involved. Do that on behalf of all the other parents who might not be able to do that and do that on behalf of the other community members who might not have the capacity to do that because in that environment of, like, a school, like, all it needs is one person to be on it, basically, and to to galvanise. So I think, you know, we've all got children in schools within our community that we can engage with. A hundred percent. Oh, I love that we've got to a more hopeful place, though, because this is, this is the thing, like, education and kids, like, the kids are going to be all right. Like, they know what is necessary and like if you if you just ask is like 
oh, what would you do with school budget? They'd be like, they come up with like the best ideas and like, oh, I just, I miss like being in communion with like students and pupils and like, you, I'm trying to get back to that work, man. Yeah, being in the room with the energy and with the people and the hope, yeah. Oh, yeah, I know, I, I feel, I, I don't know, I feel like it's really like insidious, all the stuff that's happening, but I do feel like people are on it. Like, I feel like we're on it, like everyone's on it and... I do feel like this this tech, I don't know. I'm for, for my own life, I've made an action point for myself. I'm going to get involved in some sort of like, let's bring down big tech. Because it just feels like everything we're talking about, it's like, it's the insidious work of these private tech companies that are destroying everything or making everything worse at least. So that's something that I'm working on. I'm going to figure out how to take them down. <laughs> women in STEM. Um, I, yeah. Women in STEM. Women outside of Women hating STEM. <laughs> Great campaign group name though. <laughs> Love. Yeah, it's coming across a very anti-woman. <laughs> outside of STEM. Women who hate STEM. In the next episode, we're getting into conversations about carceral feminism. Uh, we're gonna be asking questions about like how do we reject this idea that policing and violence are the answer to a lot of um the issues that we have when it comes to gendered violence um and so on. And I'm really excited for this conversation because I just, there's so many ways that the feminist movement has let many a group, many a group down. And I think if we're able to like interrogate that and be honest about that and um, find solutions to, again, like reimagination and building a new in a way that is fresh um, and progressive and uh, actually recognises the struggles of all the different communities that we need to serve with these with these movements then I think it's gonna be something real powerful so yes feminism abolition all of the good things to come in the next episode I'm so excited I reckon there'll be so many similar parallels from this episode in that one in thinking about like stop letting the government tell us what our liberation looks like and stop telling the letting the police tell us what our liberation looks like um and i'm excited i'm I'm excited i can't wait to hear about all of feminism's flops like we really have flopped on many occasions white feminism we got a lot to answer for but new horizons let's move through it let's build something better come on now girlies come on i'm gonna have to reflect on my white feminist days aren't i what a time i feel like you're you've moved through you've moved through but i know Poor me, I was like 15. I didn't know any better. I know. I love it though. I love people's embarrassing activism stories. God bless us all. So thanks everyone. And we'll see you next week. See you next time. Thanks for listening, guys. If you've got thoughts, feelings, critiques, resource recommendations, all that good stuff, we really, really want to hear it. So defo comment on the Insta, shadow.mag, or hit us up on our new Gmail, shadowlightpodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to be really nice, you can subscribe to us on Apple and Spotify podcasts or give us a nice little rating. And we would love you for that. Thank you.